Eve, August Bolcha Gudion Clar. Hello and welcome to Heart to Heart, a podcast where we chat about Irish vernacular buildings, past, present, and future, with the people who love them and look after them. I'm Livia. And I'm Roisin. And we are committee members of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings in Ireland, or SPAB as it's also known. This is episode seven of a 10-part series where we talk to different people working in the area of vernacular buildings in Ireland, as well as those who are passionate about conserving them. This is our third season running the podcast. And in this episode, we talk to Rachel McKenna, the Architectural Conservation Officer for County Offaly about her book, Traditional Architecture in Offaly, and get a wonderful insight into the vernacular tradition of the county and the outcome of many years of research, work and conversations with owners. We learn about the importance of recording memories and traditions and the involvement of the county council in the process. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Rachel. It's wonderful to have you joining us on the podcast today. You are the Senior Executive Architect, as well as the Architectural Conservation Officer for County Offaly. And you've also recently published a really lovely new book, The Traditional Architecture in Offaly. It's history, materials and furniture from the 1800s to the present day. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to your interest in conservation and traditional Irish architecture. Great. Um, hi, Roisin. It's lovely to be here this evening and thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, yes, I've worked as a conservation officer in both Kildare County Council and in Offaly County Council. And I'm also a grade one conservation architect, so I've had a long term interest in the conservation side of things. Um, we had also published a book um, in 2017. It was sort of a larger scale building, so it was on the follies of Offaly and their domain. So we then um, had started to look at kind of the smaller scale buildings within the county and the kind of traditional and vernacular architecture. And it did all start with a call from Anne-Marie Egan in Carrigine, close to Five Valley. And she had called us about her property, um, which had been, it's it's a family owned property, had been relatively unaltered over the years. Um, there was never a kitchen uh, sink or anything added to it because part of the family had moved to a new house and they prepared the meals and brought them into the elder relatives who still lived in the um, former attached property in Carrigine. So that kind of combined around the same time, we had an updated survey of the attached properties in the county. And that had originally been carried out in 2004. And it was carried out by Barry O'Reilly, who I know you've already had here and um, do a podcast for you. And at that stage, we had 75 attached properties in the county. And that was um, resurveyed then by the Built Heritage Collective in 2018, and the numbers had dropped to 43. So that clearly signified um, just how fragile these properties were. And initially then it was a publication that was supposed to be dealing with just Carrigine. And as we started to do the work and as that survey had, had shown those results, we expanded it to the county as a whole. That's great. This with the, the thatch buildings, it's I like I saw you gave a lecture in the Irish Georgian Society for their vernacular study day recently and you, you mentioned those numbers and they were just really heartbreaking. Um in such a short time, like ten years was it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 pretty stark and um 
we we made some instant um, decisions then to try to promote the whole of vernacular architecture um, as much as we possibly could. Um, so the book was part of that, and mm -hmm. um, it was it was also to kind of create an awareness of the importance of these structures, and um, also um, to to sort of foster a pride in in those that weren't perhaps in use uh, around the county. And there there were quite a few of those, um, mm -hmm. and it wasn't just the buildings themselves. It, was also the um, fixtures and fittings within them. So it was to try to promote this all across the county and and really um, allow people who, who maybe weren't as aware of the importance of them to, to gain a greater understanding of, of exactly what they had, both from the materials, uh, the craftsmanship and the history that was behind all of these properties. Uh, we also then sought to uh, try to, to uh, bring more to the fore uh, the vernacular projects within some of the grant schemes. So with the Built Heritage Investment Scheme that we would monitor every year, uh, mm -hmm. we included the all of the owners on the catch property list and we would have sent the app we send the application form out to them every year now. So we've had quite a good uh, feedback from that and we have about four, five, sometimes six properties applying each year now for, for different types of, of grants schemes. That's fantastic. Um, Livia, you have a question. Yeah. Um, have you found out that after you publish these books and the introductions of the various schemes and now the introduction of the uh, vacant uh, home scheme, that there is a better response from the population, that they're more interested, that the books have actually kind of sparked something Certainly, the book um, showed a lot of people how important uh, both the, the structure itself was, and and to start to appreciate more, even the the architecture of the buildings, and that perhaps their own was slightly unique. And some people would have been looking at them, and they'd say, "Why why does my door come in here, and there's this funny jam wall?" And you know, in other people's, it was a direct entry, so it was a slightly different kind of an arrangement. So it was part. It was partly just trying to create create that understanding of, of how the buildings had worked and also then to give advice about what you could possibly do with them. And uh, that has been quite successful as well. We've arranged a number of tours during Heritage Week and we mm -hmm. have shown where some of them have been altered. And in some cases, it's quite a large extension to the rear, but we've, we've worked closely with the owners. And there was there was one where it was a very young couple had taken it on. Uh, everybody thought they were crazy and uh, it was in very poor condition when they did. But we worked with them as part of their planning permission. And you know the main aim was to keep the new ridge below uh, the existing ridge height so and also that it didn't encroach towards the front or the side of it so it works quite successfully in in that regard kind of wish i could see a photo of that one um i know county kildare did a really nice book which i also cannot remember the title of but the gist of it is it's um gives suggestions about how to adapt these buildings and gives examples of successful or uh, the type of extensions that would be, we'll say, appropriate and appealing for for the conservation team. And um, in your dealing with with sort of with people who might be considering extensions, are you able to show them these extensions or these like potential um, templates, I guess, of how they yeah. might approach it? 
Um, that's a wonderful book. It's the Reusing Farm Buildings book in Kildare County Council. Yeah, it's absolutely yes. fantastic. And we would highly recommend that to people. And I know the RAI have recently done one working with older homes as well. So we mm. would have a lot of links um, through the Georgian Society the, uh, as well as the Heritage Council. And we would use a lot of those links when we're dealing with people for the first time. Because sometimes they're coming in and it's not necessarily about planning. They just might have, have this property that was left left them by a family member and they're wondering the best way forward with it. Mm. So yes, it's very important to be able to show existing examples. Uh, when I when I first started in, in Offaly County Council, I was involved with the senior planner on the uh, rural design guidelines. So there would have been some aspects of that as to how to approach it. But we would work specifically now with thatched properties. We, we would work very closely with those. Now, it can mm. be difficult and some owners, you know, a lot of the time it will depend on the personnel that they have working on the property. Project. We would yeah. always recommend that it should be a, a conservation architect who works on it as well. There can be, you know, people of different ways uh, that they, they wish to move a project forward. And mm. you, you would be trying to focus them perhaps more towards the form of some of these uh, original buildings. And again, that's where the book would be helpful, where, where you would direct them towards the setting chapter, where yeah. they, they might may, maybe build on in a linear format in some cases. That would have been when in you know they were built with the same materials and it all was a very cohesive end result they also then would have had different courtyard arrangements and and sometimes those outbuildings are there existing and we would try to encourage people to maybe bring those in to the uh, new part of the home now and that has actually worked very successfully in one project as well where they came in for planning they were going to build a big extension to the rear it had an existing court it had an existing outbuilding kind of in an, mm. in an L shape out the back and we suggested that maybe rather than you know plunk a building in in the middle at the rear of it it would be better to use this outbuilding and then they would have this lovely sheltered courtyard in the centre mm. where the sun would, would come to it all day. And we said rather than tie them exactly to the kind of narrow width of the outbuilding, because a lot of them are quite narrow, that they could maybe add a sort of a glazed bay to that and, you know, and that could become their kind of circulation space and for the end room it could be a much bigger open and kind of airy room. Because a lot of these buildings, they are small, they are dark yeah. in some cases. So it does give people the opportunity if, if they are building something new to the rear to you know promote color and brightness and more much more daylight coming into the property because like a lot of these buildings when you know when we when we look back through them that's that's one of the big things that shines through I think when you start to look at, at things like the dresser and the settle bed and all around the hearth how they used to really uh, highlight the different colors and you know mm. it was a real celebration of color when they, when they did yeah. uh, get their hands on a big pot of paint and um you know you know the 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 settle bed, the dresser, the cup racks, all of these were painted in really, really vibrant colours. And I think it's very important to try to harness that, that moving forward as well. Two questions. One was that lovely layout that you were saying, keeping the L shape with the, the glass sort of addition. Did, did that go ahead? Did they did they go for that and they kept it? That, they have got, yeah, they have got planning permission for that one. So that one was successful. Hopefully it'll go ahead and get built. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I say now, you're not always as successful. Um, we yeah. had one where they were looking to build a really large extension and it was, it was very high. So yeah. we suggested that it should be lowered and it was. Uh, so hopefully that one will work. There was another where it was 
a very deep extension. And again, there were issues there and uh, that one might end up having to go ahead. Uh, it's still below the original ridge, but it would be much deeper than I would have, have liked to have built. And it certainly doesn't give you the original form and the kind of historical form. And again, that's another huge importance of, of trying to have this book to show people, maybe if you look back at the old cartographic references, check the old maps and see how it developed over time. You know, they generally did keep to a certain um, kind of style of building and certain depth of building. Now, they might have been tied to it or constrained because of materials, which you can say we aren't now, but they just are much more harmonious in the landscape as they sit yeah. with those kind of dimensions. And you had a second question. Yes, I did. And I <laughs> forgot about it and it came back to me there. But uh, just to say on that as well, I think something that people I, I don't think often realize about these buildings is usually that they're built quite smartly into the landscape like they and they have they tend to have trees and walls and all of these different features you mentioned in your book I believe um how they might have wind shelter or they're facing in a certain direction to get the good light so it's kind of it's in their best interest to sort of recognize why buildings are built this way and maybe themselves have have less issues with the new extension um, the second question I was going to ask you was, do many people or is there much interest from the people you're talking to who would have these traditional, particularly the thatch buildings, but also generally traditional vernacular, traditional farmhouses in keeping the interiors? And like you're talking about the wonderful colours, I know that mightn't be for some people or they want to move on and adapt it and things like this, but are they still keeping the furniture, keeping some of the features there and are they happy to do that or how, how have you found it? Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the ones that have very uh, good quality furniture still in existence, many of those mm. are, they're almost like they they were an original home that maybe the family have retained. So mm. it might not be one that, uh, for instance, a new couple have come to live in. So they would be very much items that the family are are really concerned to keep. And there there's nobody getting in to change those, mm -hmm. you know, so that that's what we've really found. And and I'm sure you're aware of, of some of the Facebook pages um, on Irish vernacular architecture and the one on yeah. furniture. You can see on those the huge numbers that are involved in those and the incredible discussions that are promoted around yeah. furniture and fitting. So it really is inspiring to see that there is such huge interest. And of course, what we would really prefer is that they are kept within the county. So in some cases, uh, there, was a, there was a lovely one out near Killoran, just outside Tullamore. And we were there as part of they were they were there for conservation grants and they, it was being thatched the father of the home it was originally his childhood home and he's actually the thatcher as well um, mm. so he had we had mentioned at the time you begin to sound like you're you know some dubious auctioneer talking about have you any old nice dressers you know but we were working <laughs> on the book at the time so we yeah. would always ask people so while his daughter lived in the house and there wasn't one because it was, it was very small and she was tight for space he uh, said straight away oh we have one and we, we've kept it it's it's out in the shed now it was turned into the wall and I was there trying to peep in behind the little crack between the wall and the dresser and could see that it was a very old fiddle front dresser and yeah. he said look we'll be come back to me in about a month and I'll have it turned around for you and he had a settle bed and they had the two of them turned around when he called me a month later and any bits of old uh, fittings that they found had, had put onto them and mm -hmm. as it turns out now his son has since purchased a, a derelict property we fe feature that in the book as well 
okay. nearby. And he has rebuilt it and with his father rethatched it. He repaired the windows. They were steel windows and he remade the timber frames exactly the same as the originals were with a tiny little rebate on them. And they repaired the wrought iron gate. And he is hoping in the future to restore those uh, just with a small amount of conservation work required to restore both the dresser and the settle bread and bring them back into that house. So that would be fantastic. You know, they'll just move down the road from, from where they started. Yeah, it's it's really fantastic. Makes my heart so warm. <laughs> it's lovely. Now that you mentioned the dresser, it just came to my mind uh, last week. My my partner is from Kildare and um last week we were at his parents' house and we were just looking inside the shed and I caught a glimpse of this beautiful dresser in one corner of the shed kind of covered by other pieces of furniture and I asked his father and he said that actually that dresser belonged to his grandfather so it is possibly I don't know 1860 or 1870 something like that and my my partner's father is a carpenter but his great-grandfather used to be a carpenter and his grandfather used to be a carpenter too. So possibly they built it themselves. And it's painted like a bright lime green colour. And um, But what he was telling me was that he inherited it because when his parents... He, used, he was born in a traditional cottage with lobby entry or something like that. And he... Um, when the house was demolished eventually and they sold the land and they divided it among the children they had, each one of the children got one piece of furniture and they were all different colours. And the the only thing is he left it there. He wanted to repair it. He wanted to restore it. Never had the time to do that. And I think he feels guilty to do it now because he's too mm. old and he knows that he cannot give it all his heart. So we're actually looking for someone that can actually restore it and we would like to gift it to them to him and his wife because I think it would be just fantastic you, you yeah. can see he has put it there and has put all the furniture around it to kind of preserve it mm -hmm. it's just oh that'd be fantastic yeah, it'd be well worth um, doing it. And a lot of the time, you know, you'll find that there's only a certain amount of it is damaged, you know, maybe the lower parts of it, some of them. I was going to say that, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of this information, obviously, um, people should refer to Claudia Kinmott's book. Um, and I know yeah. you've had her on for a podcast as well, her her absolutely incredible book on Irish furniture and furnishings, um, which is yeah. just wonderful. So some of them would have had these, the, you know, the sacrificial sledge feet to allow, um, and they, they could be changed as well over time and you know you can you can treat any of the woodworm that's on it as well so it really would be well worth and it'd be worth contacting the other family members and just saying do they still yeah. have you know parts like a settle bed stuck in a in exactly. a shed somewhere as well and maybe combine them together if you found found the appropriate house for it yeah or even just to keep track of them so at least someone in the family knows where they all are and should they ever should they ever all come back together <laughs> would be nice but it's also beautiful is that that particular dresser has some features, decorative features on the the edge of the shelves, and it's it's not just like a pencil bull nose or something like that. It it actually has like two rebates, one at the top, one at the bottom, and that is a feature that my partner's father has always used in his own uh, pieces of furniture because he always wanted to replicate that. And I think he just had this sort of influence since he was a child. That it carried through, and it, yeah. I think it's amazing. 
Yeah, that's that's what's so lovely. And I think that that's what really shone through with the Carrageen project. And I think that's why Claudia Kinmoth, who who was very much involved in that, was was so impressed with it because it was such a comprehensive history. It was, uh, you know, an oral history. There was a very much an extended family. Both uh, Pat Egan was was and is Anna Marie's father and he had a large family um, of siblings and then his large family himself. So the the, the family connection is very broad and as part of it they they kept like a, a diary in in the house so they write down all of these different stories yeah it's absolutely fantastic so small things like that and you know you can start to see maybe within the area you know if it was somebody if it was a family member who made it or if it was perhaps a carpenter who lived in the area you might find that detail somewhere yeah. else yeah. Uh, because I know in 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 Tipperary now, for instance, Anthony Donoghue has done a really in-depth uh, survey of within the townland. He has actually gone into all the buildings, so so he can tell straight away who made which piece of furniture, and that kind of level of information is amazing. And especially if you have something as intricate as that, like yeah. within Offaly, sometimes you can have an unusual end board, you know, at the, the mm-hmm. end board of the dressers, and and you'll find those are matched with the settle with the settle beds as well so just those little details are fantastic and in many cases it wasn't applied timber which maybe yours is that was very fancy having extra timber to apply a detail <laughs> yeah. um, a lot of the times it's it's a cut out detail you know where, where timber was scarce and that's how they would have made uh, you know their decorative details so you could have cutouts in the fretwork up up around the top of the fascia board or around um, recess panels they might just have little you know butterfly wheels in the corner so just different details like that and you know if you did get the opportunity to look properly in an area and have the time to do that you could start to see these repeated around the place but even having the information of who might have worked on those and who might have made them is is absolutely fantastic that sounds very similar to another episode or another two episodes we'll have in the podcast later on in the series where we talk to people who are involved in the Galway Forge Gates project and I think what really struck me about that, and um, when you're talking about Anthony Donahue, it makes it, it makes me hopeful uh, for a future where maybe each county you have these, or even areas you have these heritage or history groups or people who just have that interest, like Anthony, uh, like Emma Laffey in in County Galway, that have the interest to just talk to their community and keep a record, go in, take photos, take pictures. You don't like, you can try and save every single piece, but even just taking a photos and recognizing the features, the details of the, the furniture or the interiors of the houses, whatever it might be. Um, I think it's just, I'd love to see that <laughs> in the future. We'll, we'll have a, like the same way we have the surveys of the, the, the patch buildings. It'd be lovely to have a survey of all the forge gates, you know, in County Offaly in, in County Galway. I know this one happening in County Westmead. Um, but I think it's it's an awful lot of work and it. it's it's about the people in the area being able to give their time and their knowledge because that's that's who that they are the people who have all of the history and the knowledge and you just want to record it and make sure we we keep it. 
Absolutely. And the whole idea of blacksmiths and blacksmithing, um, that was a project mm-hmm. that we, we had got involved in a number of years ago uh, through the Heritage Office. And Amanda Pedlow is the Heritage Officer in Offaly yeah. County Council. And we had Shem Caulfield came uh, to Offaly, who mm-hmm. obviously has worked in many different counties. And mm-hmm. he was he was involved in doing, um, he, he worked then with the school, at the primary school in Geishal as well. And uh, had there was a blacksmithing demonstration there. And just to see the kids involved in those and we actually produced a book at the time about Geishal and part of that includes yeah part of that includes some of the blacksmithing elements so that was wonderful and we you know you you gain such a knowledge and such an interest when somebody like Shem Caulfield is showing you around and and showing you the different features and again in a similar way to looking at similar kind of decorative features uh, within the carpentry element of things, you would have it obviously within things like the wrought iron gates. And what's absolutely incredible is how there's always more information and new information out there. And only only three weeks ago, somebody contacted Amanda, the heritage officer, about a forge within the county. And it's still a working forge. We had no idea that it was there. And he, he... Still uses it. It doesn't have any, you know, fancy horseshoe arch. It's on the side of the main road between Burr and Ross Gray. And immediately I was saying, I wonder is he or his family responsible? There's beautiful gates nearby with kind of a double arch within them mm-hmm. and some decorative um, scroll work between. And, you know, if you can, so some of them have these lovely sunburst patterns to the to the mm-hmm. corner um, and some really intricate then little details where they have the blacksmith's marks up at the top, yeah. you know, lovely uh, little star shapes or different patterns on them. And you do start to look at these like, yeah. and, and within Kennedy Castle, for instance, there's really ornate gates uh, around some of the grounds uh, mm-hmm. where they where the the tips of the finials fold into two little uh, love hearts. Um, yeah. So there's there's and and at some of the you some of the vernacular or traditional buildings, like the um, property out in Ballydown and in near Geishal as well, and that mm-hmm. featured in both the Geishal book and in this traditional architecture book, because mm-hmm. you know the whole fittings and and how they did their gates. Uh, they again they were another celebration of of local craftsmanship. So it, it is trying to bring that in to all of these publications and to promote it within the people, you know, within the area that they gain a greater understanding again of the importance of these and and you could see that even with the with the project outside Killoran where he did restore the gate and it was only in a local I think a local kind of a factory where they worked on um, with metal sections and they restored the gate themselves and were were well able to do it and it was back on site within a couple of weeks looking as good as you you know so it was super Yeah. yeah the forge that's still functioning, does he still working or what type of work is he doing? You know. I haven't been out to it yet myself, but yes. it is on my to-do list. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, so, yes, he does. He still opens it up uh, two or three times a week. And so he's doing something in there. So that is another to-do project. And we always felt that the whole Gates element, uh, Amanda had produced a poster, you know, the Gates of Offaly mm-hmm. many years ago, and uh, which is still available. So it is, you know, it, it, it is very much something that has been kind of started and the, the bones of it are there. Um, yeah. So, yeah, look, there's there's so many different projects that you could get cracking on. Um, but once yeah. 
I think once somebody highlights the interest, you are always kind of looking out for it and you don't realise. But if you're talking about it to different people, like even <laughs> we were down in Clare and my daughter was getting a lift from her aunt in a super duper cool car. You know, the roof was down and they were trying to look really cool. And uh, well, I'm sure her auntie looked really cool. Dirtle was only eight at the time. And as they were driving <laughs> by, she said she said to her auntie, she goes, oh, look at that beautiful gate over there. <laughs> So her aunt says, what have you done to her? <laughs> At eight years old, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was that was around the time that Shem, Shem Caulfield, you see, had come and to, to the county right. and was working with us. So everything was all about Gates at the time. Yeah. But that shows that really shows the importance of doing projects like that, which um, like where you, you have somebody come in and talking to young people and giving them this information, which they might not, you know, their grandparents or their aunts and uncles might know it, but they're not necessarily going to pass it on to the younger people unless somebody with the experience comes in and tells them uh, that is fantastic. just talking about grants I was wondering um if you would have any involvement with the the new vacant property refurbishment grant I know that applications are made to the vacant homes officer and I know that there's also the the grant for conservation advice for refurbishing traditional farmhouses is that something that the, the conservation officers would have any uh, I won't say like involvement necessarily but advice or would you be involved in it anyhow um, well, generally, it's run by the regeneration team, as you mentioned, mm. through the vacant homes officer and the new grant scheme. We would have people phoning about that because they mm -hmm. had one the previous year, which was a wonderful initiative where owners could uh, take on a consultant and they're dealt with directly through the department. But out of that, we did get somebody who, you know, she was quite elderly, uh, found it quite daunting, wondering yeah. how would she start approaching the whole grant scheme. And mm -hmm. she she did apply, you know, she was encouraged through through phone calls to apply for that department scheme last year. And she has availed of a conservation grant this year as well. So that was great. And it was kind of mm -hmm. touch and go at the beginning. Um, we were yeah. chatting with her and with, with her consultant as well. So that project has commenced on site. And the big thing about the, the Built Heritage Investment Scheme is that there might be small grants. They can vary from between a minimum of two and a half thousand. It can mm. be up to 15. We normally don't go over about 12 because we've so many people to give them out to but um the the importance of them is that once people come in and they get used to the whole scheme and how it works they yeah. could apply again over a period of years because and, and some people do if they come in and get a grant for two and a half they you have to do, you know, 50% of the works have to be covered by personal costs. And so they might do exactly 5,000 and then apply again the following year for, for something else. So it's a way yeah. of, of kind of keeping on top of, of maintenance and repairs within properties. Yeah. And I, I guess it can be preferable instead of like, unless you need something very essential done, uh, it can be preferable to do a little bit of work here, a little bit of work there, rather than just trying to take it all on at once and get it all done, which can be very costly. So 
that yeah, it, that and is it, nice. it obviously depends on the type of work. Like as you say, if it's something big, if it's something like a, a large roof repair, we we would mm-hmm. try and encourage people maybe to go to for the historic structures fund instead, yeah. uh, which which is a larger fund, and that that is determined by the department. So it's a little bit of a lottery. You're never sure who's going to get it or or who mm-hmm. isn't. Uh, so, but we've we've been pretty successful with it. And I mean, with the built heritage scheme, some people come in and maybe we're looking to repair all the windows on their facade and when they hear they're only getting 6,000 they say well that's you know not going to help a whole lot and you're there well maybe you know start on the ground in the first floor or depending on the width of the property mm-hmm. and how many bays you know do do what you can manage for the first year and come back the next year and that that's worked quite successfully and as you say it kind of suits the carpenter as well because yeah. he's not committing to just one project for the summer because obviously mm-hmm. things have to be done within the time frame. Yeah. So it kind of does work out quite well all around. I know one of the difficulties, and this is why there is now the, the vernacular stream in the BHIS grant, right? Built Heritage. And the H, yeah, but it's the HSF has the vernacular stream. And then yes, within, but, but also within the BHIS, they have a separate grant now, especially for thatched properties. So that's mm. a new one that's just come out um, this year. So there are the two different ones that people can try to avail of. I did not keep on top of that. <laughs> well, the, the vernacular one is for non-protected structures. So yeah. it's really trying to aim, yeah, for uh, kind of outbuildings and things that mightn't otherwise get a grant. Yeah. But in terms of traditional farmhouses that may not be, that may be more recent, maybe they're not in like, I'm not going to say entirely vernacular, maybe something that was built in the early 1900s, isn't quite as wonky is you know maybe is a, a type building could you tell anyone who might be listening what kind of grants they might be able to apply for this or are there if it's not a protected structure do you mean if it's if it's not a protected structure and it's if it's not a protected structure you're talking at the vernacular fund as part mm-hmm. of the historic structures fund otherwise you're looking at things like sustainable energy ireland and yeah. seeing can you mm-hmm. get funding there so yeah, yeah they they be the kind of ones that you'd have to go for if it's not a protected structure. But people do have the option of coming in, and and that's how Carrageen came to us first. It wasn't a protected yeah. structure because we weren't aware of it. So you can be put on the the record of protected structures, and so you can be a proposed protected structure um, when mm-hmm. you apply for the grant, yeah. with a view to it being um, included by the end of the year, and then you can come in under the normal kind of built heritage investment scheme. But yes, okay. if it's if it's a kind of a later or a more recent property, yeah, then you'd be looking at maybe Sustainable Energy Island grants and things like that. Um, I have a question that is a little bit different. It's it's more about just architecture and tradition in Offaly, and I know it's it's going to be a bit controversial. It's just it's a question as an an outsider. Because I'm not from Ireland and I'm I'm not from Offaly, and what I've noticed is that it's a it's a county as we said before it's very wide it's very big and I've noticed that there is a massive difference between one end and the opposite end. At the end, the west end has the boundary with the Shannon, and there's places like Burr, Carrigan. There's a lot of nice towns that seem to have had. A massive development whereas the other end that is neighboring with Kildare where the bog is it's to my eyes is kind of a bit like empty there's not that many cities or towns or villages and 
you you drive through the landscape changes, the uh, relatively the, the types of houses change, and I don't understand why is that. Like, is it my impression, or is that something that it, it's actually for real, and there is an explanation for that, a historical explanation for that? Um, no, it's 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 very much real, and a lot of it will be down exactly as you mentioned to the land and the availability of quality land. So when people would have been coming initially and looking to um, create a new uh, established domain, a lot of them would have developed around somewhere that already had a basis. So, for instance, around Burr, you would have had um, the uh, Lord Ross there uh, since about 1671. So he, in, as well, would have encouraged other people to come along. So you would have had large estate owners and family owners looking to settle within the area. You would have had a certain amount of soldiers uh, coming uh, during different times in the Napoleonic Wars. That was a huge right. build-up around Tullamore. Um, there was a property developer there, Thomas Akers, and um, he he built up a huge property portfolio. Again, that was all around, um, around the town. It, uh, you know, you had the courthouse there too. But a lot of them then where you would have had large family domains, they would have been looking for good quality land. And once they had established, their, you know, their daughters and their sons would have tried to build in the area as well. So the whole kind of area from Burr down towards the south, towards uh, Shinron, down to Ross Grey, that was really, really good land. And similarly, then you have some very large estates they then would have built um, estate, you know, cottages, as they call them at the time for, for their um, their employees. And so, so there were a lot of established domains in that area, some really, really very fine houses. And then as he started to move towards Tullamore, you know, there were still those connections between the two big towns. Yeah. And there's very much the east-west divide within the county. And even in the traditional architecture book, that's explained as, as it matches across the country. So a lot of that was to do with available material. So kind of from Dublin across, as we've mentioned it through uh, Meath and Kildare, ex nearly exactly to halfway across Offaly, you have more of the mud walled buildings and they consequently had um, hipped roofs over them to allow the, the roof to spread over the load of those walls. And then from there across all the way over to Galway, you would have the availability of stone and they led to stone built properties with gables. Um, so a very different kind of an A roof. Um, but also then around the bogs, which, as you mentioned, like there's smaller bogs within, you know, the, yeah. the west side, but over towards the east, they'd be much more expansive. But you did have places like Geishal, which would have built up around Lord Digby. And one of his huge projects, um, not very, you know, um, welcomed in the area, was about land drainage. And like a lot of the times then you would have had your, your historic one-roomed cabins, um, which would have been built around the bogs. So you can still see, uh, you, if you look at the old maps, Places like Clombalogue, um, you could you can see where they would have been built, you know, all parallel to the road. They would have been small, yeah. kind of two roomed, one, two roomed properties. There's one lovely road in, in Clombalogue, and we still have two uh, thatched properties nearly, you know, uh, very close proximity to each other. And that would have been a throwback from these, you know, properties all built along what is basically a bog road in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I remember driving yeah. out there yeah. and thinking, where on earth am I going as the car is bouncing up and down? <laughs> and at one stage it was after an awful lot of rain you were going through like there was water all across the road you could see the road uh, so yeah it is, it is a lot of it will be down to land 
and then historical families, you know, and landowners within those areas. And there were some very fine properties built around Eden Dairy, and again, they would have spread out. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. A place like Eden Dairy, it's a town that has a massive potential, um, and historically had a fantastic development because. The, the main square is one of the biggest available in Ireland. No cattle fair would have been as big as the one in Eden Derry in the 19th century. And the train station and the, before that, the, the harbour and the, the canal. So it's, it's just, then you compare it to some a place like Burr and all the Georgian architecture and that. And it's just, it's very different. But there's very fine architecture in Edenderry as well. I mean, you look at some of the beautiful door cases along the main streets, yeah. along um, JKL Street. And, you know, you had um, the Downshires there and um, some fabulous estate buildings that were built too. There's a lovely diary written for there um, about somebody, Richard Manners, I think the name is. And, and he has a diary about, you know, arriving on the canal and checking out some of his properties within, uh, within Edenderry. And again, nearby, you have uh, John Jolie and his wonderful diaries that are in Trinity. So really interesting um, to hear about the kind of estate. It would have been a relatively small uh, domain that he had, but to hear about the produce that he grew within the grounds. So you get a fabulous kind of a rich sense of, of what he was you know, how he lived at the time. And he has beautiful drawings and sketches throughout his diary. Um, he was very much into music. He has some fabulous, fabulous pieces uh, that have been written and never played up in the in uh, the archives in Trinity as well. So, you know, some of his sketches, if you were to start to look at landscape domains in detail, uh, his, his would be of huge importance because he has lovely uh, little drawings about works that he would have been doing in the garden, how he was trying to get you know, containers for bringing large amounts of water and he showed like, like wheeled containers where he was carrying wow. them, you know, to get them out into the garden and um, then there's the lovely bee skep that he had a sketch of which was made out of sugon rope and he has a beautiful drawing of that he showed how he was trying to train different plants up against the wall and um, you know by doing lean to glass houses and he had thatched out buildings like he's he mentions a huge amount throughout those diaries and of course you have Edenderry Historical Society there with Kieran yeah. O'Reilly has done so much for the promotion kind of of, of the history with in the area. So there's some very, very rich sources of material for the east of the county as well as uh, for the remaining parts. That's great. No, that sounds like a, a fantastic resource. I never sort of think about those diaries that you're talking about, but yeah, there is so much, the details that you can get out of it and it's quite personal and yeah. Oh, very much so. Um, for for part of the Follies book, I was reading about uh, a Sadlier, Reverend Sadlier diary for Muller Hill, and he was a provost in Trinity. And it's, you know, you read through these diaries and it's exactly as you say, it's so personal. I began to feel like he was Uncle Sadlier by the end of it. <laughs> you know, you get so invested yeah. in him and his and his family. And he, he was so fond of his wife, like she, she was um, Letitia, but he called her Letty. And 
and you know he, he spoke yeah. about his daughters and it you know he tried not to say too much but you could read between yeah. the lines how much he cared for them like he, he would talk about bringing them up to Dublin when he was there and showing them around and yeah. um, how, how when one of them was ill with a toothache how he had to try to look after them and and then he mentioned where one of his children she, she died very young and you know he didn't express too much at the time and he, he even mentioned where she was buried and everything but he just he just wrote in the his last entry that day was about how he saw a, a butterfly came in and and flew oh. around the room and then flew back out into the garden and I just felt you know poor yeah. poor sadly yeah so you really do and again that was another diary that was in um in Trinity in the archives there Jane Maxwell yeah. the archivist there is absolutely fantastic about giving help and um he he described all the surrounding fields he described the people who worked for them like they had names on the fields and how he would have you know brought they seem to bring charcoal out to the fields to try to fertilize them and you know tried lots of different ways again it wouldn't have been mm. fantastic land that's that was in Caloran so you're very mm. much your east-west bang on your east-west divide there and some beautiful thatched properties in that area one of the smallest ones is the wonderful hipped house in Caloran um, which is just down the road from uh, the estate of Mulla where Reverend Sadlier had lived is the one that is on your book when you're talking about the the difference with the hip roofs. Yeah, that's the one. I had to buy it definitely when I moved in. I I I had to learn something about the place, you know. So. Yeah, no, I, I, that one is there, and we had actually used that as part of um, an engaged with architecture project a few years ago. And as part of that, there was uh, where we had worked with the um, Irish Architectural Archive, and um, we had done some audio recordings of of different groups. And one of them was the owner of of uh, there was a kind of a family who used to care for that property and they um they didn't they didn't live in it at the time but they would meet there every week once a week the extended siblings would all come back and they'd have tea um in the property light the fire and tell different stories so that one would have been highlighted to us very early on it was fantastic and we had a photographer at the time came round as part mm -hmm. of that project James Freyer and he took some absolutely beautiful photographs of many different types of properties so we were looking at, at a lot of different types but as part of that they had some stories which are kind of mentioned in the traditional architecture book about how their grandmother used to grow tobacco in the garden and the leaves would be dried and they mm. were brought to the market in Tullamore where there was a tobacco factory and that's one of the things that I found amazing doing research for this book. There was a book Irish Rural Life and Industry that was printed in 1907 and it's absolutely phenomenal. It shows, you know, both cottage crafts, as they're called, which would be, you know, fine embroidery. But then it shows all the small scale factories that were around the country. So things like the tobacco factory in, in Tullamore, the beekeeping was a huge industry. Um, lace was absolutely enormous. Um, there yeah. was there was a lace making industry in in um, in Kinnity and just the amount of different things, you know, making boots, making gloves, gloves that yeah. were, you know, imported across all across Europe that were made in Ireland. So you kind of think, you know, if we all took hold of that book, you know, you've a lot yeah. to learn by, by looking at yeah. that, about the amount of things that we used to be able to do um, and do really, really successfully. Can still do. <laughs> exactly. Hopefully. And just surprised by the tobacco because it's uh, it's not a plant you would think 
could grow in Ireland. Needs a lot yeah. of heat. No, it does grow um, because somehow or other, um, my mom at the end of her garden in Dublin has a big tobacco plant growing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how it seeded itself. Somehow. <laughs> yeah, huge big leaves. And um, that book, uh, the, you know, it's kind of, I think it's the same family as the potato plant. Um, so the Solanum family. Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah, they do grow fairly easily and it's only the leaves you need. It's not like you need fantastic big flowers from them. But there's a wonderful photograph in that book, Irish Rural Life and Industry, and it shows the cart uh, that's been led by, um, I think it's a donkey, and these enormous big leaves all hanging down around, you know, the raised cart, which were dried and then brought to the market, uh, you know, for, for sale. So that is something new. I yeah. I also had never heard about tobacco being grown in Ireland. Yeah. Um, I remember being, we, we did the SPAB Ireland working party in 2019 uh, there in Woodfield House near um, Burr. And that's I remember nice. being surprised and delighted um, when we did a tour of Burr Castle and just talking with the family there in Woodfield about the history of this, the industry you're saying, the metal industry there was in, in Offaly and particularly around Burr because there was uh, all of the, the Parson family was so scientifically minded. I don't know how you you would necessarily describe them, but they, you know, the the, the world's largest telescope at the time and that they had all of these foundries producing so much metalwork and I remember being so surprised that like you said there were the steel windows or the iron in the cast iron or were they steel uh, some of the a mix yeah yeah um windows in outbuildings in like barns <laughs> and I would have just thought they were you know they would have cost too much money how what are they doing here but of course if they're you know there's this foundry there in bird that's working then why not and that was a real sign of, you know, a landlord trying to show how, how his improvements and, and mm-hmm. what he could do for the local estates. So you can very much see that in Geishal as well with the Lord Digby estate and the wonderful mm-hmm. estate books that were done where they had these amazing drawings. There, there's watercolours and they show as it was and then as it is now. So a lot of the time, yeah, they, they would have included steel windows in, in timber frames and they were kind of pivot windows in some yeah. cases, the whole window pivots and some it's only yeah. a tiny little bit up at the top. So, yeah, so while some of the outbuildings in Burr would be huge, you know, they'd be the beautiful big courtyard buildings and they would, uh, many of those had steel windows. A lot of the kind of smaller thatched properties, um, Geishal especially, so they'd be kind of an estate owner mm-hmm. um, idea. And again, it's all about trying to show how you have uh, promoted these new and innovative ideas and um, but I mean in Burr as well they would have had uh, the glass works as well so you know it it was a case of oh so we have to create an enormous mirror for this telescope um, and how are we going to get glass that size and they couldn't possibly get it so it was just well let's just do it ourselves you know so it's a real case it's not a problem let's just tuck in there and, and, and get going now obviously they had the funding to do it too so but they had to create the expertise a lot of the time it was local people who were working on those projects yeah I think that's that's what I found so fantastic is that you you know I think going through school in Ireland you sort of have the idea of like the landlords oh they were you know they were terrible the English coming in here but when you think about the actual relationship sometimes where you would have good landowners who are actually there and investing in, in the community that's around them how that has an effect and sort of uh, filters out in these different ways to to people of all levels, like we'll say, uh, like to the traditional farmhouses, to the vernacular farmhouses, that they still had this influence. It's 
it's quite lovely. Um, and like you're saying, the diaries as well. Absolutely, through the diaries, but also through um, some of the travel writers at the time. Mm-hmm. And that's how you will often find out kind of interesting quirks about, you know, how, how people were were encouraged to try different techniques and different materials. Mm. So there's there's some very interesting discussions um, based around the estate out in Gloucester uh, with the Lloyd family. And uh, some of those are written down as well through one of the travel writers where he was kind of casually encouraging, you know, the, uh, you know, some of his tenants to perhaps, you know, it might be time that you considered, you know, looking at rethatching and, and then a lot of them now are trying to, you know, impose different types of materials so the mm. whole idea of slate roofs they felt would would be much more efficient but it wasn't always imposed and a lot of people really struggled against that they re- really much preferred the thatched properties yeah. so yeah it's quite interesting to see how they would try to um, maybe alter the mindsets of the people that they were you know they had within the houses um, in some cases like even within Bird they would have, have stipulated along the, the main streets you know the heights of chimneys were required and mm. you know the different types of finishes that they wanted out the front as well so that that's a different that's more to do with town planning obviously they had had wonderful uh, proposals in mind and, and but you can see it in the smaller scale and so some of those discussions like between the Lloyd family and and some of their tenants they're very interesting reading those those travel guides um, written by contemporary writers at the time they're absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic they're a joy to read I feel like we could keep going and going and going. There's so many little uh, rabbit holes we could keep going down with this. But uh, I don't want to keep you here all night, Livia. Can I ask only one last question? And maybe we'll edit out if it's too long. It's just a personal question because I am passionate about turf roofs, turf used for, you know, um, it's like soft capping, these kind of things. And I saw in your book that you talk about the scroll roofs. But I was wondering, are they always done in conjunction with a thatch or were they actually used as as just turf roofs? No, the ones the ones that I've seen, they were like an under layer. Um, they they right. were and and they were very much an insulating layer. So okay. yeah, they were to tie between the ribs, which sat over the purlins, and they in turn sat over the kind of a roof. Uh, so they were they were stitched on the the scroll, yeah. as you called it, was was stitched on to the ribs and into the collar ties, and you can often see that from underneath still. But yeah. then the patch okay. was applied with scallops through that. Um, so. I, I think in a, in a lot of cases you would have had a built up over time maybe on outbuildings and as you say mm-hmm. the kind of soft cappings which can work very successfully um, especially yeah. on rooms and I know um, somebody was trying that recently uh, one of those posts where they had a beautiful new gate done in a kind of an old wrought iron style and they had built new wing walls and had put on a soft capping on the top to try to Where did they do that? Oh it was one of the Facebook posts on um, Okay on Irish it, vernacular architecture, yeah. Because I did my uh, my thesis for, I did the course in Trinity College for uh, conservation and um, I did my thesis on soft capping. So every time I see soft capping, <laughs> it's just, and I know that the working priority that SPAP did was a part of it was all about soft capping. Yeah. And it was the Hirenberg 
there was certain places where, you know, it's the only end result, um, yeah. you know, that you, I remember there was one in Kildare, I'm really digressing now, and it was, I think it was a Knights Templar um, building and it had a, had a curved roof, uh, a curved first floor ceiling to a yeah. building, a room up above it and the room up above it gone. So that curved element was still there and it was mm-hmm. fully sealed with the soft capping up above and it was deemed, well, look, you have to keep it. It's the only thing you could really put there now, you know, you're not going to build a new roof. And similarly with some of the ruins, um, there's a few different ones here. There's there's one out in Drumcullen. It was an old um, church uh, kind of Stoke Monastery ruin. And there's so many different elements to it where some have come away and some are still remaining. And again, the whole soft capping really just binds those different kind of layers yeah. and levels together. It's it's a very successful finish. And it's one that would be really promoted by uh, even the department archaeologist, Cayman O'Brien, would very much promote the soft cappings there. That's great. Great to know. <laughs> I found it lovely in Ireland how how I see it so much more now. Like I don't think I ever, I don't think I would have seen it about 10 years ago even. I think in the last five or 10 years, I just see it everywhere. And maybe it's just, I have an awareness right now. Yeah, because that one, that example in Kildare now, I'm in, in Offaly now, how many years? Um, about 14 years. And okay. um, that was prior to that when I was working in Kildare. Yeah, Fantastic. so it, it was, it was, it was the first time I'd come across soft capping. I thought that was a great, a great proposal. Yeah. Yeah, I was very excited when I when I first discovered it as well. I think we will move on to our final questions because we can't keep it here. <laughs> um, so I'll I will ask you to. These are uh, questions that we ask every guest on the show. Um, so Rachel, what one thing do you think can be done to improve the situation for vernacular buildings in Ireland? The big issue at the moment, and I think most people would be aware of it, is trying to get skilled labour, skilled professionals, um, especially for thatching. And we didn't have as much of an issue in previous years, uh, but we've lost two of our thatching companies this year. So it's really, really going to be an issue. So I think um, both both for things like thatch, for lime render repairs, if we could, and I know that's something that the department are looking at very closely now at the moment, mm-hmm. But if we could go back to, say, school level and working with transition students, and I know you had Tom Pollard on as well, and he actually worked with um, school kids at one stage, and so did Midwest Lyme, who who we worked on uh, with out in Gloucester. So they were just saying that there was a fantastic interest to say in transition year. And then if yeah. you get certain people maybe who are going through fifth and sixth year who feel college maybe isn't the option for them. So you could be working with the local ETBs and perhaps set up some kind of a course that would involve practical work, but also kind of the historical research. So there'd be a bit more of an interest there for the people who are working in it. And I know some of the guys who are involved with Midwest Lime, they would say, there was a lot of interest when they were working with TY um, students and mm. then they began to be heading, you know, if some of them were on a year out, um, they would find they would lose interest as it got into the winter months, you know, it was yeah. getting very cold, the whole thing of working outside. So I think some kind of a program trying to catch kids that maybe uh, college isn't the thing for them, but that it would mm-hmm. have sufficient interest. It's not just all practical work. It would yeah. have a great historical basis as well. Something like that could be of, of huge significance and it's needed very urgently, I have to say. Yeah, it would be nice to see something implemented. I, like 
one of the question that we ask everybody on this podcast, as you know, is like, what is your background and how did you get into this? And so many people, particularly the trades people like Thatchers or people who are in these the, like stonemasons, they often started off in some other, you know, they they went to school, they went to college, they did some job and they go, this isn't for me. I want to work <laughs> on my hands and they come back and rediscover a trade. So it'd be nice if like you could catch kids when they know what they want. <laughs> And just give them those options. Yeah. But but show, highlighting the fact that it's not just a trade, that it is a skill. And I mm-hmm. think if, you know, people maybe Absolutely. will get much more of a pride in that if if they realise, you know, how creative those kind of, of different jobs and roles are. And both the thatching, as you say, the stonemasons, um, trying mm-hmm. to get good, you know, good quality stonemasons, uh, sure, they're been sought out everywhere all over the country so it would be wonderful if we could try to really start you know working on that and I know it's something that has been looked at at the moment yeah uh, the second question is what is your favorite vernacular building well now you couldn't possibly answer that I mean all of these vernacular buildings they're like my uh, my family you know they'd be like your children so you can't go and say what's your favorite child so obviously each of them would have you know they would all have different elements uh, that yeah. either is quirky or unusual and that you'd be particularly fond of uh, there's, there's the families themselves how much how much they've invested in them so yeah you couldn't possibly have a favorite uh, <laughs> so you would be looking more at what makes each one unique and there are certain things you know some of them are relatively unchanged uh, they've so many fantastic historical properties still uh, so that that would be one element that you'd be looking at but then you know the one we mentioned maybe where there's a really beautiful modern extension built on at the back uh, mm. so so they have you know the old and the new on the, within the same site and for, driving past from the road you would never know there was anything there so that's yeah. a fantastic achievement as well so you'd be looking at all those different ones and then even within them how some of them might have a particular cup rack and there's only one hanging dresser that we know of in Offaly so that house would be a particular favourite there's only one that we know of that has a dowry chest that we gave funding through Creative Ireland for its very sensitive and gentle restoration and I, I suppose one of the big things that we didn't really get into is about I know we had mentioned about the restoration of these particular furniture and fittings and just how obviously less is more. I know that's the whole basis of conservation, um, but the really, really gentle restoration on these and just the different elements that can, can be unearthed as you're doing them, where say they were doing the um, parlour chairs in Carrageen and discovered the old flower bags as as part of the, the padding inside and, and they were kept wow. by the conservator as well and, and put back inside. So, you know, when you begin to lear- learn more about each of them, you know, you obviously just love the ball. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the answer because everybody has always been. It's it's the trickiest question of the entire podcast, and and yeah. people are there waiting for just to give us the perfect answer. But yeah, it makes total sense. <laughs> Great way to dodge it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not dodging it. I answered it. <laughs> No, it's a perfect answer. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been lovely chatting to you this evening. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a treat. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed this chat with Rachel. If you'd like to find out more about Rachel and the work she does, you can check out the Conservation of Built Heritage section of offaly.ie 
or you can reach out to her at rmckenna at offalycoco.ie. You can order yourself a copy of her new book on offalyhistory.com or elsewhere online. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to that, along with many other interesting and useful resources mentioned in today's episode. Next week, we'll be talking to Galway Heritage Officer Marie Mannion and Emma Laffey of Skahana District and Heritage Group about the wonderful Galway Forge Gates project. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to give us feedback or ideas about future guests or topics, please give us a review and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, previously iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you use. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to help us in our quest to protect Irish vernacular and built heritage in any way, do consider getting in touch. We particularly love to hear from anyone who knows about vernacular buildings under threat that our casework team would be able to help out with. Or if you yourself have a couple of hours to spare every month and are interested in joining our team, we could really do with volunteers to help spread the word and preserve our heritage. You can reach out to us and find out more about SPAB Ireland and the work we do on social media at SPAB Ireland on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, or check out our website, which we'll post in the show notes. As ever, many thanks to the Heritage Council for generously supporting this podcast under the Heritage Capacity Fund 2023. And thanks to our editor, Graeme Baldwin, and the rest of the team at SPAB Ireland and SPAB HQ. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to tell your friends. Good day on Kate or Ella. Slong.